You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. While Americans stay sheltered in place to avoid potential coronavirus infection, many are turning to wine as their beverage of choice. Market research firm Nielsen reported that wine has been one of the strongest alcoholic categories this year, which is up 32% in the week ending on April 4 when you compare it to sales data from the same time last year. In fact, the demand for wine is so high, Americans spent about $423 million on the alcoholic beverage in the month of March alone, according to Nielsen. And in many cities, like here in New York City, restaurants with liquor licenses were given the green light to sell takeout liquor and wine. This resulted in a surge of creative desperation with some of those restaurants pivoting to become more traditional wine retail shops to make ends meet. Importers, distributors, and wholesalers have seen their businesses shift rapidly from a mix of off- and on-premise customers to a much higher percentage of off-premise accounts, upending the whole wine distribution system. And like everything else COVID-19 touches, the wine business will permanently change. I can't think of a better wine expert to put this all in perspective than my guest on the Luxury Item podcast, Thomas Matthews. Thomas is the executive editor of The Wine Spectator. He's been writing for The Wine Spectator since 1987 when he was a freelancer living in Bordeaux. Hired full-time in 1988, he was based in London for a year before joining the New York office. He became Wine Spectator's executive editor in 1999. He's also the lead taster for Wines of Spain. Matthews has lived in Spain, France, and England, and has degrees from Bennington College and Yale University. His passion for wine was sparked when he worked the 1979 Harvest in Bordeaux and matured while working as a wine buyer for New York restaurants Odeon and Café Luxembourg in the 1980s. In 1993, he published A Year in the Vineyards, an account of his experiences in France. Welcome, Tom. Thanks for joining me on the Luxury Item Podcast. Great to be with you, Scott. Thank you. Um, I have to ask, I hope, uh, hope you're being safe and staying well these days. Uh, where, where, where are you located? I live with my wife in a brownstone in Brooklyn, and uh-huh. uh, we have a peaceful garden, so we are comfortably sheltering in place. Oh, that's great. So um, when the days are nicer, like it is supposed to be, now today's kind of a rainy day here in New York City. Tomorrow, you'll be able to uh, enjoy the nice weather in your backyard. That's great. So before we, we just jump, missed, uh, the grilling in the French. we just missed <laughs> grilling in the French. Uh, yeah. So um, before we jump into, you know, how the pandemic has uh, upended the wine business, I'd love for you to tell the listeners who might not be familiar with Wine Spectator a little bit about the magazine. It's been around, I know, for about 40 years. It has uh, before Marvin Schenken purchased it. I think it was a newsletter, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to share about the magazine. Well, thanks for asking, Scott. Wine Spectator was born in 1976, the bicentennial year, uh, the year of the Judgment of Paris, the year when wine really started to seep into American uh, consciousness. And uh, it struggled along for three years under its original owner, but was failing. And uh, Bob Morrissey, the founder, begged Marvin Schenken to buy the publication to keep it going. And Marvin did, and rode the white wine wave and the Napa wave and the Bordeaux futures wave and created uh, what is now the most widely read wine magazine in the world. We have uh, 400,000 paid subscribers to the print publication and 
independent estimates say 3 million readers around the world. So uh, we have a big voice and we operate it for the consumer. We are really a lifestyle magazine for people that love wine and dining and travel and all the good things that come along with the wine lifestyle. And uh, our core operation is rating wines. We review about 15,000 wines in independent blind tastings every year, trying to give um, unvarnished uh, opinions about their quality and their character so that people can really uh, make their most of their budgets and explore their own palates and become uh, wine lovers on their own. So do you have the independent wine tasters around the world or do they actually work for Wine Spectator or, you know, they're separate? Um, we're relatively unique in that all of our tasters and editors are full-time on staff with us and all of our tastings take place in our offices under circumstances that we control. And we uh, cellar and prepare the wines in flights for the tasters. Our methodology is quite precise. It's, it's well explained on our website, winespectator.com. But the two goals really, Scott, are A, to give every wine a fair and equal chance to show its best without um, bias or influence from producer or price. And secondly, to give the reader uh, good, solid information to make prudent decisions. You have a pretty fascinating background yourself, and I'd love to share with, you know, if you could share with everybody how you found your way into working for Wine Spectator and a little bit about your background. Well, thank you. But to put it in a broader perspective, one of the reasons I've stayed in the wine industry for 35 years is because of the people that are involved. Most people that get involved with wine do it because they're passionate about it, not because it's some pre-recorded career path. So there are many people in the wine industry who started someplace else and wound up here um, sharing bottles together. I uh, dropped out of graduate school to write a novel and decided to do that in Spain. And this was back in 1978 when I was 25 years old. And I did finish the novel, never published it, but ran out of money at the same time. And a friend said, let's go to Bordeaux and pick grapes. I said, well, why would we do that? <laughs> he said, well, the, the, the food is great. They give you all the wine you want to drink and the work is easy. So I said, Can't beat let's that. go. Right. Well, he was right on two out of three. <laughs> As you the work was not easy, but I just fell in love with the whole world, Scott. I mean, I, we were in a little vineyard in Ante de Mer, family-owned, nothing special, sold most of the wine in bulk, um, working with a team of Spaniards, uh, and just the whole world of it, the, the agriculture and the architecture and the history and the science and the people, especially the people. So I said, well, I have got to, um, I'm not a very good novelist. Maybe I can write about wine. So I moved back to New York, and as you mentioned, I got a job at the Odeon restaurant. This was in 1982. It had just been open a couple of years in a part of town called Tribeca that nobody even knew what it was. Right. Um, but it kind of caught fire. Uh, for the four years I was there, working my way up from bartender to wine buyer, it became very trendy, uh, and we had a blast. I remember one night... Uh, Diana Ross and Leonard Bernstein both came in, both wearing floor-length white fur coats. Hmm. Uh, wow. Beautiful. It's, and if, for people who aren't familiar with um, 
the Odeon. And if anybody has read the book, uh, Jay McInerney's Bright Lights, Big City, that pretty much captured what was going on at the Odeon at the time. And it really was this haven for people like Andy Warhol, Robert De Niro, John Belushi. Um, you know, it really was a cocaine fuel scene back in the 80s, as, you know, as, as pictured in, in, in Jay McInerney's book. But it was a really fascinating time. And like you said, Tribeca was a completely different part of uh, New York City. Um, so I'm sure you could write your own I've, book I've, just on that experience there. Well, Jay, of course, is a successful novelist who became a wine writer. I've gotten to know him a little bit and joked to him that probably I served him a martini back in the 80s. <laughs> um, but in any case, what, from a wine point of view, was interesting about that period was the explosion of Beaujolais Nouveau. Mm -hmm. That was huge. I, I could not keep it in stock when uh, the third weekend of November rolled around. Why was that? Also, why, why, do, why do wines like that become hot all of a sudden? You know, Scott, if I knew that answer, I'd be rich. <laughs> but uh, also Chardonnay. That was the very earliest days of California Chardonnay exploding. I remember Sonoma Couture. Suddenly I couldn't keep that on the wine list. Right. And uh, Absolute. That was when Absolute Vodka, the premiumization of spirits, started happening. So the early 80s was a very interesting time for the wine and spirits industry. And I was very pleased that I had a chance to see it on the ground you know, in a consumer-facing trendy restaurant. But after a while, I got tired of schlepping cases from the cellar to the bar. So I moved back to France, 1986 now, with my now wife, Sarah, and we moved back to Entre-de-Mer, a little wine village, to research a book about the life there, which I had never stopped thinking about since 1979. And during that period, I started writing freelancing for Wine Spectator, and in 1988, they said, you know, we're expanding. We would like to have a reporter in Europe. Why don't you join the staff? Right. So I said, sure. Uh, why not? I'll do it for a year or so. And when the book is published, you know, I'll move on to the next book. Uh, this book actually did get published. Thank you for mentioning it, Village in the Vineyards. Um, but it had the shelf life of yogurt. <laughs> most books. What was it about? And did not make me... It was about the people and the, the, what, it, what it's like to live in a village that's devoted to wine. Hmm. Uh, the, lo the local cooperative, the friendly mayor, his enemy, the, um, the secretary of the town hall, the crazy priest, you know, all the kind of characters that you could imagine living in one of these backwater French villages. So when you go back, yeah, when you, I was going to say, when you go oh, back yeah. to France, do you visit that, vi that village? Very much. And do they and, remember uh, you? Are the same the, people there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And in fact, some of the younger people that we knew there have become close friends, and their daughters have come to stay with us in New York. So it's kind of been full circle. Wow. But again, that's the wine business. It's just hospitality, sharing, um, like-minded people, generous and, 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 and friendly. Yeah. So let's fast forward to today where, you know, I don't have to tell you in the audience, we're living in unprecedented times. Um, so what happened the day that you heard um, that restaurants and bars and winery tasting rooms were being shut down? And how did Wine Spectator cover that story? What, what happened that day in the following weeks? You know, as you probably recall, it sort of was rolling thunder. 
in early February, I was in Spain for a wine fair called Barcelona Wine Week. And um, this was the very first days of February, and all of the Asian visitors who were scheduled to come had canceled. So we were talking with the organizers, well, what's going on? Well, we don't really know, but there seems to be an illness over there. We're still kind of learning about it, but it's quite a blow to the fair not to have these Asian buyers and visitors. So uh, I got back, and there was the Expo New York at the very first days of March in at the Javits Center, and it was the Javits Center was empty. Hmm. And what's going on? Well, Things have been canceled. People aren't coming. Uh, so our first report on the coronavirus on winespectator.com was posted on February 27th. And at that point, it was still focused mostly on what was happening in Hong Kong and uh, mainland China, uh, but also noted that Italy had just begun reporting cases and uh, that the lockdown had started in tourism was threatened. So by the time our office is closed on March 16th, of course, everything was basically locked down. And uh, But we've moved to remote working. Uh, we have 40 people on our staff. Everybody's scattered to the four winds. And I think that our website has continued to do amazing job covering. We uh, are publishing stories every two or three days, both uh, hard-hitting facts about the damage that the wine experience and especially the restaurant experiences mm -hmm. having, but also more lighthearted things like what to read, what to watch, you know, how to, how to entertain at home by yourself, uh, things that can maybe help people get through the hard times. So are you finding that you're hearing from some of these wineries and owners and some of the people that you've worked with and wrote about over the years coming to you um, either for advice or thoughts or want to get their story out. Um, what are you hearing from them? Uh, well, it depends on the sector. Yeah. Um, the winery sector is kind of sort of schizophrenic. On yeah. one hand, they're continuing to tend the vines and work in the winery uh, in order to manage the, their inventory and prepare for this year's harvest. Um, but on the other side, they don't have any visitors right. and, uh, they don't have, and half their customers are closed. So for example, a young man named Jesse Katz at Aperture in, uh, Healdsburg, Sonoma had spent five years building his winery and tasting room to open to visitors get grand opening with April 17th. So, I mean, that didn't happen. So he had a virtual opening through Zoom, and uh, it's just, but at least they still have their normal tending the vines, pruning, spraying, whatever, you know, that work, which helps keep them sane. Right. The restaurant industry, of course, is a disaster. I mean, we, we have 4,000 restaurants in our wine list awards program and we did a survey of those of them recently and um only about five percent mostly international wineries are actually fully open for business 50 percent are open for takeout or delivery but right. that you know their business is down 70 80 percent yeah i was i was 
talking about earlier in, in at the beginning of the show, uh, on the opening of the show, how a lot of these uh, restaurants, especially in the big cities, um, with liquor licenses, uh, they've been sort of given the green light to, you know, to sell takeout liquor and wine. And they've all of a sudden had to pivot their business to become these wine retail shops to make ends meet. And that has been a, a benefit for them, Scott. In our survey, more than half of the restaurants that are open are also selling wine. Yeah. So it's something that they've already paid for, you know, that now they can actually get some cash flow from, which, and they're dead, offering, in many cases, excellent prices. So uh, for savvy consumers, I would say check out your local restaurant and see what they've got to offer. Yeah. And, you know, wine sales are exploding right now, um, particularly online because of, uh, you know, this coronavirus quarantine. So do you see that continuing? Well, the retailers, they just can't believe it. I mean, yeah. for them, it's like every day is Christmas. Right. Um, but on the other hand, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're social distancing. And as you said, the people not coming to the store, having to figure out how to do it all digitally and through delivery has posed a lot of challenges. And they are telling me that the kinds of wines that people are buying have shifted. That in the first few days, there was some uh, celebration kind of buying, uh, high-end, might as well splurge, who knows how long it'll last kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But now it's really gone back to magnums, bag and boxes, $10 bottles, you know, um, value for money. Interesting. So they may be selling, yeah, they may be selling more volume, but they're making less money. What I, I was looking at this, and I'll talk about that shortly, but one of the trends that came out from the study from uh, IWSR said that a lot of people are reverting to these familiar trusted brands they know, um, you know, that comfort feeling, if you will. So I'm wondering if that plays into effect here because, you know, trusted, band, trusted brands are beacons in, in tough times like this. Yes. Uh, for example, we just had an interview with the Terlato Wine Group based in Chicago on the Shankin News Daily, our sister site. And CEO Bill Terlato was talking about how they've shifted many of their top brands that used to go to restaurants into retailers. Um, so suddenly things like Chapoutier or Gaia are, are actually available in retail shops where they weren't before, but it's the big volume brands like the Federalists, which are at, in the 15 or 20 or $30 price range that are really, really going uh, sales. Yeah. So what do you think the long-term effects are going to be of the coronavirus on the wine market? Well, um, you mentioned the online sales. Uh, Wine.com, one of the biggest digital retailers, reported that their sales doubled this March from March 2019. Uh, so, and Gary Fish, a, a retailer in New Jersey and Napa, says that he went from several hundred users of this mobile app to several thousand hmm. in just a couple of weeks. Wow. I think that the the, the online arm is definitely going to continue. And, you know, will that affect the kinds of wines that people buy? I, I think it will. I think the kind of wine that you get after you've walked into a shop and talked to a knowledgeable salesperson or an owner about your taste and, and what they see happening 
is likely to be a little more esoteric, mm-hmm. maybe a little more out of your comfort zone uh, than if you're browsing a, a an online catalog. Right. Where I think something that's familiar is is going to be your go-to. So I think we could see a certain homogenization of the wine market going forward. I think also that bigger wineries are in a better position to survive financially than the small wineries that depended so much on visitors and uh, restaurants. So if the small wineries fail, that also will reduce diversity and uh, increase kind of homogenization. Yeah. And, you know, it will affect some of these niche and lesser known wines as well, where again, if people just want to keep going back to the brands they're familiar with, um, what's going to happen to, to those brands. And let's not forget the tariffs, Scott. I mean, that right. oh, the tariffs, of course. damaged, they damaged uh, many imported wines and the, and the importers of those wines and those small importers who were seeking out the little treasures in Spain or Germany, uh, you know, or, those, that's going to reduce diversity too. Right. I was reading recently that uh, this whole, you know, everybody being self-isolated these days, um, you know, people are becoming more interested in online wine and liquor auctions. And I was reading that uh, Christie's um, just pulled in a million dollars from a wine and spirits online auction and uh, some other auction pulled like $7 million from that. So it seems the fine wine market seems pretty resilient. Do you agree with that? There are collectors who are on the hunt for certain kinds of bottles, especially rare Burgundies, old Bordeaux, and I think they're looking at buying opportunities. But that's such a tiny niche in the market. I mean, when you look at everybody that's unemployed and all the restaurants closed, which is where so much wine was drunk, I think overall the effect is really depressing. Yeah. Uh, I was talking about IWSR and they, they just came out with a study or um, where actually they told it was trends, if they will, um, on, uh, on things that are transforming consumer drinking behavior. Thanks to COVID-19. I'd love to hear your perspective on a couple of them. And we talked about e-commerce as really being the uh, you know, business critical now. And they found that mm-hmm. alcoholic beverage sales in North America grew like three, three and a half times the rate in early 2020, uh, wine and spirits uh, are growing two times as fast as beer. Um, do you think after the you know, coronavirus, I don't know when it will fade, but when people start going out again and things start picking up and opening up, do you think that trend will carry over as the crisis fades? Well, I think we have to look at two phases at least. About the, besides the current one, which you know, as everybody alone, uh, as we slowly begin to come out of it and the, re- the regulations slowly ease, uh, I, I think that wine sales might actually decline. Um, people will have stocked up enough for their personal consumption, but yet they still won't be having dinner parties or, you know, or going out, mm-hmm. so they won't have ramped up new purchases. I think there could be a, a kind of stagnant period that could, might last four months, six months, yeah, until people start feeling comfortable again eating out with strangers. But I, I think that once we have the vaccine, once 
life is more back to normal. I, I, I feel like wine has become such an integral part of American lifestyle that it will resume its normal pace and, uh, and once again become a beverage of celebration and delight. Yeah, and one of the other trends they actually said was, you know, basically at-home consumption is the new going out. Um, that it's encouraging people to consume more at home in, uh, at, you know, at this point. But when, when they'll start going out is, is, is another point. But, um, you know, and especially also thinking about the economic downturn that's happening now will impact disposable incomes. You know, we all lived through 2008. And um, that was also a difficult time for the wine industry uh, for many of the same reasons. People just didn't have the money to spend on non-essentials. But I think it came back in fine shape after that. Right. And uh, I, to me, it just feels like we'll get back to. I mean, what do you think you you have an interesting perspective on the luxury market overall yeah i mean some wine has got one foot in daily consumption and one foot in luxury as you mentioned do you right. think the luxury market is sustainable in this new world we're about to move into uh i think the luxury market will evolve and um like every crisis that we've been through um any kind of underlying shifts or cultural shifts that were just waiting under the ground to happen, usually events like this push that up to the forefront and accelerate it. Um, where luxury, especially within the digital world, where luxury was always sort of behind everybody else in terms of selling luxury online and the digitalization mm -hmm. of luxury sales, um, it's going to change the whole entire re retail business. It was going that way anyway, but this sort of gave it that shove um, that people are just going to uh, also think about what luxury means to them and what's important and what's not important. Um, you know, I was just reading, I'm sure you've seen it too, that Neiman Marcus just f filed for bankruptcy or they will file, right. for, file for bankruptcy, but, and that's just scratching the surface. You will see in the next few months, um, more bankruptcies uh, by large retailers and just people are going to be forced to shop completely differently. Um, we're seeing direct to consumer businesses. Um, some of them that were uh, sort of figuring out, still figuring out what they were, what, where they were going or becoming profitable all of a sudden are finding their way when now that people are doing more things online. Um, so they've sort mm -hmm. of had a, res a, a, a shove and a resurgence. resurgence. So luxury is here to stay, but again, it's just evolving um, and it will be something else. I think time will tell. I think it's still too early. Um, you know, there's research coming out every week, you know, it's taking a pulse on the consumer. But again, that's very reactive. Um, I think we still have to wait and see how, uh, how it all turns out. There's a lot of things that are going to come into play here. Um, but it'll be, it'll be interesting times. I, I think there is a sort of innate human appreciation for things that are finely crafted, made of beautiful materials, work extremely well, can be handed down to your children. So in, from that perspective, I think the luxury market and the high-end wine market has its place, mm -hmm. right? Mouton Rothschild or right. uh, uh, you know, Antonori in Italy or 
you know, some of these cults, Harlem, Cabernet and, and Napa, they, the brands that have transcended just a beverage yeah. and have become something more meaningful. Yeah, and one, one of the last trends that they talk about is about moderate, being moderation being on the back burner, that before the lockdown, many people were drinking healthier and in moderation. Now they're prioritizing comfort. Um, so do you think that's also a temporary hiatus? Like, this is kind of a temporary hiatus and people are going to start drinking healthier again? Um, frankly, I hope so. I mean, I think that people are anxious and uh, alcohol is a, a way of addressing anxiety. But in the long term, it's better as part of a multi-tiered approach, including exercise, healthy diet, sleep. I mean, personally, I have cut back my wine consumption. Uh, it just feels like a prudent thing to do. I mean, I, for me, wine is, is shared around the table with friends and family. When my wife and I are sitting down together for dinner, it just doesn't feel right to open a bottle every night. So, and I, I think that, yes, let the belt out, relax a little bit. People will probably gain weight as well. <laughs> Aren't but we all? <laughs> yeah, but let's, let's, loading let's his, call uh... <laughs> Let's be healthy. That's, yeah. that's, I think you know, wine can, is part of a healthy lifestyle, but it you know, it has to be integrated. Yeah, that that's, would be my my plea for people. You know, celebrities have really gotten into the wine game and have really put uh, keeping wine in the spotlight. You know, basketball star Camelo Anthony has a weekly YouTube series. You know, what's in your glass, where he talks about wine with other celebrities. Uh, Netflix released that movie. Um, I think I, I said, what do you really said? Oh, this, uh, yeah, uncorked about what it's like to be a master sommelier. Uh, I was also reading that there's a collaboration with Snoop Dogg and 19 Crimes Wine Label, which they sort of put themselves on the map with their AR uh, label a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, they're doing a collaboration. And just let, this past week, Ashton Kutcher released, uh, launched this quarantine mm -hmm. wine with profits going to COVID-19. Uh, all this buzz is great for the industry. It's true. I mean, and it's part of what I'm saying that it's part of our culture. Wine is, is wine appreciation, enjoyment, exploration has become part of what we do. And whether it's LeBron James or Ashton Kutcher or Sting, you know, it's, uh, it, and I think people take their cues from these celebrities and that's another reason it's not going away. Wine appreciation and enjoyment. Yeah, and all the celebrities we just talked about have a stronger appeal to a younger audience, millennials. Um, so I think, like you said, you know, they're the influencers. Um, so they will keep the industry alive as long as these influencers um, continue to embrace um, wine in their life. I think, though, from a wine journalist perspective, you know, let's taste these wines and make sure that they're actually good. <laughs> not just have some, right, <laughs> some throw a name on signature on the label. Right. Yeah, because um, there has been some of that, unfortunately. And I think, you know, that's very short term. Somebody like Sting, who actually owns this huge estate in Tuscany and is working biodynamically to make, you know, very solid wines, or even, you know, the Brad Pitt 
Angelina Jolie Miraval that's done in partnership with the Perrin family of Chateau de Beaucastel in, in, in Provence. I mean, some of these wines are delicious, fantastic. John Bon Jovi's rosé right. is, is excellent, you know, made with Gerard Bertrand. I haven't tasted the quarantine wine from Ashton and Mila yet, but maybe it's not going to be quite as, you know, ground up kind of quality. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll see. So what do you More think, put, put on your, you know, look in your crystal ball and what do you think is on the radar next for, uh, for the wine industry? How do you think it's going to change overall? Let's look at, let's fast forward, you know, one to two years from now. Well, I have been a skeptic to some extent of the natural wine movement. I think that it um, is overly ideological and unyielding, and I think it is tolerant of flaws in the name of ideological purity in a way that I think doesn't make sense for something that we eat and drink. But I want to tip my hat to the, to the tendency to take better care of the earth and to integrate how we grow the grapes and make the wine with an understanding of ecosystems, environmental sustainability, climate change. I think, you know, they are the leading edge of a very important movement. And however it evolves, I think it's going in the right direction. I think that's going to be a, a major trend. So do you think the coronavirus will have any effect on this? Will it accelerate it? I, I would think so. I mean, I yeah. think we're not going to stop washing our hands right like madmen you know we're we're going to be we're going to be very concerned about what we're eating how we're living we know a healthier lifestyle i think is going to be at the top of most people's priority list right you know it seems like a lot of wine uh, also, oh, go ahead i'm sorry yeah no i mean the the Silver Oak has just built a winery in Alexander Valley that is the most environmentally positive. Uh, I, I forget the name of the certification. We've just reported it, but it's a step ahead of the LED certifications. W wineries are, are stewards of the earth, and I think we're just going to see a more intense approach to that you would think they're going to have to change their business model. Now we're already seeing a lot of these wineries. And I think we touched about it a, a little bit about it at the beginning. Um, how, what are some of the things they have to, you know, innovate now to explore, you know, these new business models, given the times. True. As you, as you pointed out already, the internet side is crucial. Fortunately, the United States laws have changed so that now wineries can basically ship anywhere in the country. So at least they don't have the artificial regulatory burdens right. uh, holding them back. Um, but, I mean, really, if the restaurants don't reopen, then I, all bets are off. Right. I mean, that is where wine culture is forged and uh, wine is drunk and, and people are exposed to wine. And without that, I, our whole culture changes in ways that I can't even imagine. And the wine business along with it. Yeah. Are you going to go to restaurants when they open? Or what, will uh, people go to restaurants? I think I will go to restaurants. And I think 
people are naturally social animals. Um, I think people are going to be, when testing is done, I think, you know, when, when it's sort of safe to go out, I think restaurants obviously mm -hmm. have to reimagine uh, social distancing. Um, they have to reimagine mm -hmm. their whole entire business model from, you know, I'll call it, how can you, can you create contactless service in a restaurant? And I think you'll see that more and you'll see restaurants actually advertising and marketing things like that. Um, they would also have to look about, look at their business model more home delivery. And what does that look like? Uh, I'm not going to say there's going to be, you know, virtual restaurants, but I think the, the business is going to change. And uh, I think people, at least for the near future, um, there'll be more people uh, staying at home and dining. And, and if yeah. that's the case, how do restaurants still be part of their um, part of their life and uh, maybe they won't be able to go out or maybe they can, you know, maybe go out once every few months, but knowing that that restaurant has certain restrictions and, and set it up. So you still have a pleasant experience and you're not um, anxious when you go there that you'll know that, uh, that you had the same experience at that restaurant before this went down. Yeah. Well, you may be right, Scott, but that for a New Yorker, that just sounds like, I, I, I'm not a happy teacher. <laughs> I know. I'm just, I guess, some wishful thinking. So the last question I, uh, I ask all my guests, is it's called the luxury item question. I might, might actually might twist it a little bit, um, given, the, uh, given the times. And I normally ask, you know, if you were stranded on a deserted island and you had one luxury item with you, what would that luxury item be? And it can't be a form of transportation or requiring mobile service. And maybe I should change the question to if you were stranded, sheltered in place right. in, uh, in your home uh, for a while and you could have only one luxury item with you, what would that be? What has been essential to my life that you know, would become a luxury item if I were stranded on a desert island or sheltered in place? For example, I've been carrying a pen and paper with me since college. Everywhere I go, I have a notebook and a pen. Now, I've never had a fancy fountain pen or leather-bound notebooks, but uh, I would put writing tools at the very top of my list. Hmm. But I think I've also spent probably some of my happiest hours of my life just sitting in an easy chair reading. And if I were stranded on a desert island, if I had a really nice leather club chair and a perfectly engineered reading lamp, that could turn a nightmare into a dream come true, as long as the books did not happen. And that's and, what I'm going to go with. And would it uh, would it be Bright Lights, Big City, by any chance? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Bring back the old days. Think about the life left behind. <laughs> uh, Tom, thank you so much. This was really informative, and uh, I appreciate you doing this uh, virtual podcast, the first one. Hopefully, um, when things get back to normal get back into the studio again but uh you've been a terrific guest and i and i really appreciate you coming on thank you so much for the time and the interest and let's hope we can share a wine not I, virtually one of these days i hope so and stay well that's it for this episode of the luxury item podcast thank you so much for listening if you found this useful and entertaining i would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague 
I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.